I think that we should all be open to engaging in debate on policies and the evidence and data that underlie them. However, personal attacks are not acceptable, and I think they erode will to do the hard work that needs to be done. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. New England is on fire, but not with foliage, with COVID infections. All six New England states are now in the top 10 for the highest rates of COVID-19 infections in the country. New Hampshire is currently number one, the highest rate of COVID infections nationwide, followed by Rhode Island, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont at number seven, and Connecticut, according to the New York Times. Hospitals throughout the region are in crisis as they fill to capacity. In response to this surge in infections, New York has imposed a statewide indoor mask mandate to tamp down the spread of the virus. But Vermont Governor Phil Scott had staunchly refused and backed his chief of staff, who last week lashed out at a public health expert who has been critical of the state's lack of a mask mandate. Today we speak with two public health experts about New England's deepening pandemic and about attacks on science and public health. Ann Sasson has a master's in public health from the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins and is a policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center for Public Policy at Dartmouth College. She has been the target of the Scott administration's ire. John Levy is the chair of the Department of Environmental Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. Well, Ann Sasson and John Levy, welcome both of you to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having us on the show today. Uh, and let me start with you. You straddle both uh, Vermont and New Hampshire in the work that you do. New Hampshire right now has the highest rate of COVID infection in the country. Uh, Vermont is right up there in that top cluster of states. Um, why are we at the place that we are at here in New England? Unfortunately, the uh, Delta surge that we're experiencing in northern New England was both predictable and preventable. Um, uh, Northern New England has um, the highest rates of vaccination in the U.S. Um, However, there are several factors um, that have led to the surge that we're currently experiencing right now. Um, We know that despite our high levels of vaccination, there are significant um, county and town level disparities in vaccination. Um, We're also um, seeing many factors um, that are contributing um, to increasing transmission. Um, We have returned, children have returned to school, workers have returned to offices, we're seeing an increase in uh, local and regional travel. Um, And all of these things have the combined effect of increasing um, the mobility of our population, as well as exposures um, that were um, within our communities. John Levy, I wonder if you could fill in the Massachusetts picture here. Um, where is the pandemic at and what is being done in mass to address it or not being done, as it were? Yeah, in, in Massachusetts, we're in a very similar place to New Hampshire and Vermont. We have cases rising rapidly. And, and I think there's a few things going on, right? Obviously, we have the vaccines and a high vaccination uptake. But if we compare to one year ago, that's counterbalanced by the fact that we now have a more infectious variant. Uh, We have less mask wearing and broadly fewer public health protections in place. And we have a good number of people who are more than six months past their second shot and have not received a booster and so may not have 
adequate protection or at least have waning protection compared to where, where we were a while ago. So I, I think we're certainly positioned better than some places, but you know, we're, we're certainly not prepared for the coming weeks and months that you know, could bring a, us obviously Omicron as well as the, the Delta variant. New York State just announced a statewide indoor mask mandate, but Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont, uh, the governors, have refused to uh, impose such a mandate. Um, John, what do we know about what difference mask policies can make? We know mask policies can make a big difference, and masks, especially high-quality masks, can make a huge difference. So if you are to put on a KF94 or a KN95 or an N95, these are all you know, available, readily available to purchase. You can reduce your exposure to COVID by upwards of 95 to 99%. And that protects you as an individual. If collectively everyone is wearing masks and wearing high quality masks, we really cut down substantially on transmission. And we know COVID is predominantly transmitted through the air in indoor settings. And so if we are all well masked in those indoor settings, we can have substantial protections in place. Uh, Ann Sassen, you've looked uh, specifically at states that have imposed mask mandates. I also want to be clear when we talk about mask mandates, these are mandates for indoor, uh, wearing masks indoor, not outdoors. Um, what do you find when you look at other states? There are um, currently seven states with mask mandates in place. California became um, the most um, recent state to enact um, a mask mandate. Um, the six states that had mask mandates in place um, prior um, to yesterday saw an immediate increase in masking um, upon implementation of their mask um, mandates. Um, we know that mask usage is significantly higher in all of the states that have mandates in place. And Hawaii, the state that had um, earlier masking that was comparable um, to what we um, previously saw in Vermont, um, currently um, has 67% of its population masking, which is about um, double what we have observed in Vermont right now. Um, so, and we also know that there's broad public support um, for masking. Um, polling data shows that the, uh, that the majority of Americans um, support mask mandates right now. So you've pointed to Nevada as kind of a case study of that shows the difference an indoor mask mandate can make. What has happened in Nevada? Nevada has adapt, adopted a data-driven mask policy um, that links to CDC guidance and metrics. The policy turns on automatically um, when community transmission reaches substantial or high levels and then off again when it subsides to moderate or low levels. And I think that it's a really elegant policy model for other states um, in that it adapt, adjusts um, automatically if um, CDC guidance um, or situation changes. Um, and it, um, it eliminates um, the need for local decision makers to study case counts or go back to the drawing board um, if conditions change. Um you know, there's an axiom among journalists with that we never like to be the news. Uh, I suspect it's similar for people in public health. Um, you like to comment on the news, not be the news. But you became the news briefly this week when the chief of staff of Governor Phil Scott, uh, Jason Gibbs, accused you of, quote, concealing the full truth, having false assumptions 
and suggesting that you and other critics are desperate to prove a false narrative. Um, those are strong words. Um, what is your response? Um, unfortunately, um, in Vermont, we're experiencing record cases, hospitalizations, ICU deaths, and school cases. And so I'm concerned that this is a distraction from the hard work that we need to do to address the public health emergency um, that we currently have in our state. John Levy, this kind of criticism of a public health expert comes in a context uh, nationally where public health experts are being um, harassed, criticized, and just basically the subject of a variety of backlash. Can you talk about that context and what you think happens happened here in Vermont? Because it's not isolated, uh, although it may be new to Vermont. It's not new. For certain, it's definitely a challenging time. And and broadly, I think we should all be open to debate and discussion about what are complicated policy decisions, you know, for which any one person is not not expert on all the dimensions. But yeah, I think a lot of the attacks and harassment, you know, go well beyond what would be, you know, policy back and forth and debates, you know, people being Know, called terrorists, being having harassing phone calls made to their place of employment, very specific threats to family members, and and you know this some of this is just social media discourse, but it goes well beyond ordinary trolling and gets to real live threats. And and I should say, I mean, I I've experienced a couple of these, but very minor and modest in nature to things that I've heard for others. I, I do think it's been more aggressive toward women and people of color who are experts in this space. And I think they've had more vitriolic and harsh and personal and, and frankly horrifying attacks levied against them. So, I, you know, it, it seems somewhat naive to say, but you would hope that we could kind of disagree without being disagreeable and that we could have conversations about the alternate policies that you might take Right, without turning this into personal assaults on people who are typically volunteering their time just to try to keep people safe and to try to make make the world a better place. I always assume that when a statement comes from somebody at the level of a governor's chief of staff, that it is strategic. It is intended to do something, to accomplish something. Um, and do you? how would you reflect on that? Do you think this is an attempt to silence you and and will it work? Well, I can't speculate on the motives behind um, this attack, but I can say um, that it wasn't condemned um, by the governor's team. So that leads me um, to believe that it, you know, this had um, the administration's um, support. Um, you know, I think that we should all be open to engaging in um, debate on policies and the evidence and data that underlie them. However, personal um, attacks are not acceptable. Um, and I think they erode, um, you know, will to do the, the hard work um, that needs to be done. Um, but I can say um, that this will not silence me. Um, you know, I understand the urgency of the crisis um, in front of us, and we need to remain steadfast in our commitment, um, you know, to um, to raising concern about the current situation. Well, let's move on to, uh, and you tweeted this week 
that the narrative of the pandemic of the unvaccinated, as it's been called, uh, has been inconsistent with emerging evidence. Um, what's your problem with that uh, phrase that has really been kind of in vogue now for probably six, eight months? The narrative of the pandemic of the unvaccinated has um, has done very little, I think, to encourage um, unvaccinated people um, to become to get vaccinated, and it has also eroded the solidarity um, that we need um, both to consider a con- um, encourage vaccination efforts um, as well um, as um, to implement other. Um, public health measures, um, including masking. Um, We also know um, that children um, who are not yet eligible for vaccination um, had the highest rates of infection in our state. And so if we're talking about a pandemic of the unvaccinated, we need to acknowledge um, that that includes um, young young children. Um, I think we need um, much more um, collective rather than individualistic framing um, around the, our um, around our public health response. And so I find um, this messaging really contrary to the highly effective um, messaging um, that was employed in earlier phases of the ba- pandemic in Vermont. Hmm. Um, John Levy, I want to turn to something you tweeted this week. Uh, You wrote that we keep making the same mistakes. We treat a global problem like a domestic one and a public health problem like a medical one. We localize what should be national and individualize what should be collective. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, a, a pandemic obviously affects us all. That literally means all people and and we don't have to look too far back in the news to see we've got right, a new variant emerging and it sweeps across the globe in a matter of weeks. And so if we just think, you know, what should we do in the United States to tamp this down? And we don't think about what's happening around the world, right? We're not going to be able to solve the pandemic, right? That means we need to be you know, helping where we can to vaccinate around the world. We can't just restrict travel in from every country forever, you know, the virus will find its way in. You know, similarly, it seems like in, in a lot of cases, we've had state by state responses. And then within states, sometimes it's delegate, delegated down to the localities. And so, you know, you have to wear a mask in this city and then the neighboring city, you don't. And it, it leads to a hodgepodge and, and clearly people travel between cities, between states, you know, we are a United States and and by not having a coherent national response in some of these areas, it just prolongs the the pandemic. And and I also think we've been susceptible to thinking that we can sort of vaccinate our way entirely out of the pandemic. And while vaccines are incredibly valuable, work better than we could have ever expected and, and help to keep people you know, from dying and, and out of the hospital, right? That, you know, that's not the sole solution here. And there are public health measures, whether masks or distancing or ventilation and filtration that do a very good job and where we need to really think, think about how we protect the whole population using all the tools in the toolkit and not just think it's a, about what the, you know, what we can put shots in arms or, or have p- people swallow pills to do. I know that I hear often out on the street, people um, gathering unmasked or doing whatever they do. And they just say, 
it's okay. I've been vaccinated. I got my booster. John Levy, how do you respond to that? And I'm sure you encounter this too. This is probably one of the more common lines that we hear people saying. Sure. I mean, I think first, you know, the messaging out of CDC this past spring, I think, you know, caused some of this this narrative to emerge. I think it was it was pretty clearly stated to people, if you get vaccinated, you can resume your normal life. And so I, I think people heard that message, wanted to hear that message, and, and were just excited to be able to resume normal activities. And it's, you know, it's hard to unring the bell at this point, right? So I mean, people people have heard that and, and everyone is sick of the pandemic and eager to, to act normally. And so, you know, there, there's not an easy answer or solution to it other than that, you know, what I certainly say is, you know, wearing a mask just as a tangible example is not that difficult to do, right? Kids wear it in school for many hours a day and have fun at recess and play with their friends and have a good time, you know, we adults can gather and have a mask on and it does not impede life all that much. You know, there's obviously circumstances where it's you know, unrealistic or impractical and there's, you know, small groups who can gather with using rapid testing and so on, where you can feel more confident in taking the mask off. But I, I think, you know, I think we have to just be, be sensible and recognize that when we have tools available to protect us, again, especially in, you know, indoor crowded settings that we need to take advantage of those tools and use them. And I wonder um, could, if you could talk about what do you anticipate with Omicron uh, as we head into the winter months? And uh, although the weather this week wouldn't seem to be driving us inside, I think it's going to get cold at some point. Um, so, uh, Anne, let me just start with your take on Omicron and you know, I think it's really hard to predict um, what the impact of Omicron will be in Vermont, but we know that Delta is already a problem and we're very, very poorly positioned um, to respond um, to it right now. Um, Vermont's seeing its highest cases um, and hospitalizations um, at the moment. So I'm really concerned uh, that Omicron could um, accelerate uh, the trends uh, that we're already seeing. And so I think it points to the urgency of pivoting in our policy approach right now um, in response to what is already a problem. And what do you mean by that, pivoting in our policy approach? You know, Vermont has taken a vaccine-only strategy to controlling the pandemic, and we have mounting evidence that a vaccine-only strategy is insufficient to control um, the Delta variant. And I think it will be even more um, inadequate in responding to Omicron. I think it's really important that we put additional measures in place, including a statewide mask policy, um, that we make um, access to testing um, more readily available in Vermont, um, and that we also accelerate our efforts um, to increase vaccination in some of our communities that remain under-vaccinated, um, and also uh, deliver boosters um, rapidly to higher-risk groups in the state. What difference do boosters make with Omicron? What do we know at this point, Anne? Can I uh, send that to John? Sure. Yeah, so the you know we're still in the early days of Omicron, and, and people are you know working furiously to try to understand the implications. I think what we do know is that boosters do make 
quite a large difference you know, for Omicron as well as for Delta and other variants that it, right, it appears that two shots of Delta, you know, two shots uh, of the vaccine against Delta do not necessarily protect you terribly much, but a third shot for the booster can make a difference. So I, th I think we need to really be aggressive on boosters. You can see that the UK has already taken that posture. They're aiming to give boosters to every adult by the end of December. You know, we don't seem to have that same sense of urgency here in the United States. I think we need to start to get a little bit more urgent about it. You know, we, we have a little bit of lead time compared to some of these European countries that are already starting to see very large impacts from Omicron. We're highly likely to see that, you know, within the next month. And so now is the time to really fortify and get prepared and again, get get boosters in arms to really start to protect more people. But you know, I agree with Anne, we, we can't limit our strategy to vaccines and boosters. We, it's incredibly important to do, but we can't do only that. You've been, uh, John, you've been critical of uh, Massachusetts response. Um, I, I have to say, uh, I have a, a son in college in Boston. I, I have been amazed at how well the colleges have largely managed and largely suppressed to, I, I don't know about all of them, but you know, there's been a remarkable degree of compliance with masking and vaccines and that the, you know, whether it's BU, Harvard, Northeastern, uh, MIT, um, you know, we haven't, I mean, it's a very densely populated college setting, but there has been for the most part, I don't know, what, what, what's your assessment of what we learn from COVID control in these places? I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of universities here have been very successful. I think it shows first vaccine mandates work. It, it's a fairly obvious statement, but when you mandate vaccines, people get vaccines and the vaccines are highly protective, but it's, it's not a vaccine only strategy. Again, speaking for BU where I work, right, everyone gets tested at least once a week. Indoor masking is required, you know, things like daily attestations. But, you know, if you couple a vaccine mandate with indoor masking, testing, and then contact tracing, you know, immediately when cases are discovered, you can keep things under control. So this is, you know, something that we know how to do. We have all the tools to deal with it. You can't bring things down to zero because, of course, you know, students and faculty and staff live in the world and interact with people outside of the campus. But you can help to avoid spread in the classroom, spread in other common settings by using all the tools that we have and have available. So I, I think a lot of that logic, you know, some of it is specific to an institutional setting like a university, but a lot of that logic generalizes. If we have a much higher percentage of people vaccinated and boosted, more universities are starting to mandate boosters now. If you have free access to testing and you have indoor masking, we could really get things under control and get under control fairly quickly. Right. Um, and, and that's been my observation that life is relatively normal. If you look past the mask on these college campuses, um, you know, there's there's not been any great need for lockdowns or I mean, there's been none of that uh, really um, isolated cases. But, um, John, what has your concern as we move forward right now? What's what's top of mind for you? I mean, I'm, I'm certainly concerned about pandemic exhaustion and that as we head into the winter months, 
people don't have the desire or stomach to take public health measures that can help to tamp down the spread, whether of Delta or, or of Omicron. And I'm worried back to, I think, an earlier point that Anne made, that even in the highly vaccinated states, we, we have inequities in who has received vaccines. And we certainly see in Massachusetts a number of communities of color, some rural settings where the vaccination rates are fairly low for adults, extremely low for kids. And we don't have yet data on booster uptake, but you know, I would certainly hypothesize that those who have received boosters to date are disproportionately in wealthier communities. So I, I think we have a lot of work to do in a very short amount of time to get people protected for the winter months of both Delta and Omicron, and that we need to do it with an equity lens to avoid those who are also more likely to be exposed from being vulnerable to, to sickness and death. And what is your message for your neighbors in Vermont and New Hampshire as we head into holiday gatherings and as we look to the new year? Um, what concerns you and what advice do you give? My, um, my concerns are twofold. Um, right now, and I want to echo what John said, and um, you know, I am concerned um, about growing rural disparities. Um, we see that the current surge um, is having, um, um, you know, is affecting all areas of life in our state, but um, it's having really significant impacts on our rural communities and on access to care um, for rural patients, um, and including um, a non-COVID. Um, rural patients. Um, so that's my first concern. And my second concern um, is that we really lack a coherent federal um, policy framework to, the, the, to guide decision making um, at state level. And so my hope um, is that the Biden administration um, will um, issue clear um, policy guidance um, that um, can align um, the actions of our state governments. I guess my um, my recommendation to Vermont um, neighbors um, and community members would be that we need um, to employ all of the tools that we have um, to keep our families and our communities safe. Um, that includes back, um, getting vaccinated and getting boosted, but it also includes using um, masks, rapid testing, um, ventilation, um, and ventilation, um, you know, when we're getting together um, to gather this holiday season. Okay, well, Ann Sawson and John Levy, I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Ann Sawson is a policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center for Public Policy at Dartmouth, and John Levy is the chair of the Department of Environmental Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>